Hello, and welcome to episode 15 of Cooking with Grief, the comedy podcast equivalent of shooting an unarmed gorilla in the face. My name's Chris, but helpfully, I'm always joined by someone else called Chris, or perhaps you know him best by his wrestling name, The Naked Slipper. I don't even know how to respond to that intro. Good, right, so here's how the podcast (laughs) works. Two Chris's, two topics each, we take turns to talk about them. We digress, we transgress, we cross-dress. It's all broadly fine. Basically, we we pick two things we've uh, read about in the week, which we think will make for an interesting chat, and we talk about them. And that's that's it, really. But for new listeners, you might not be aware that we have a semi-regular feature called Kurt Russell Facts with Chris. I have learned that somewhere in Hawaii, which is quite big because, you know, it's made up of several islands each of which contains several towns and cities. So, you know, it could take a while to hunt it down unless you just Google it. But somewhere in Hawaii, there is a restaurant called The Pig and the Lady. And in the bathroom there, there is a shrine to the Kurt Russell film Big Trouble in Little China. Um, I, I would ask why, but we might get because bogged down before we can get started. Because it is an absolutely fantastic film, that's why. Yeah, I mean that's fair enough, but why is it in the the bathroom of a of a little restaurant? Honestly, I don't know. But Kurt Russell has visited it before or after the shrine. After the shrine, he found out about it, and so he went there to check it right. out. Good, <laughs> I, I guess. Thank you for that fact. I have a Kurt Russell fact of my own. Is it another one of your anagrams? How dare you question the integrity <laughs> of my research? I actually looked on Wikipedia, and I learned that Kurt Russell was born on the 17th of March, 1951, and is an American actor. Wow, you really dived deep for that, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I uh, I read the first sentence, and I thought, that'll do. Wow. So, uh... <laughs> Um, Right, so, on to the main topics. Uh, Chris, what's your first little brain niblet for us? So, Chris, have you ever been asked to do something that you are woefully underqualified for, but, you know, still gone and done your best anyway? I think that's pretty much how all of us navigate through adult life, isn't it? (laughs) You, you know, come out of uni with with a degree going, I'm employable, and the world goes, no, you're not. They go, well, I will do a menial job for a while. Well, yes, I suppose in a way you're right. But I'd say most millennials have nothing on uh, Geoffrey Tandy. Let's go back to uh, World War II in merry old England, and as I'm sure you and our highly educated listeners are aware, during World War II, Britain was trying to crack the Enigma code that the Germans used to coordinate their U-boats and attack British shipping. And to break the coded messages, the Ministry of Defence, or it was probably the War Ministry back then, they contacted various people who could work as cryptogrammists. Sorry, I had to read that because this is an important point, This, uh, the name of it. So they needed cryptogrammists. Yeah, they did They did it through uh, cross, yeah, crosswords, yeah. didn't they? They advertised, uh, they did a super difficult mm-hmm. crossword, and then if you got it all right, they thought, ah, we like the way your brain works. Yeah, exactly. That was part of it. And they also just looked for people who might be doing similar roles in there. Uh, Alan Turing, obviously being the most famous um, code breaker down at Bletchley Park. But Jeffrey Tandy was not a cryptogrammist. He was a cryptogamist. It's like cryptogrammist, but with only one R. A cryptogamist. And uh, Letchley Park recruited him. Unfortunately, a cryptogamist is in fact an expert in 
seaweed, mosses, ferns, and algae, which, as you may or may not be aware, <laughs> are not are not known for uh, their clever codes. <laughs> no, but they often are found near U-boats. Yes, and in a great twist of fate, that will actually come back later. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, nice foreshadowing. <laughs> Is it foreshadowing if we point it out beforehand? <laughs> or is it just a plate? <laughs> is it foreshadowing if I'm I'm standing here going, I am now foreshadowing something that it will happen soon. Be impressed. But yeah, so anyway, um, Mr. Tandy, he um, gets recruited despite being an expert in a completely different field because he actually he, uh, he actually worked at the Natural History Museum. So they uh, hired him. And he um, was sent to Bletchley Park to try and help crack the code. And he did his best, even though um, it was nothing to do with what he knew. Still, you know, which is good. I don't know if he told anybody this isn't what he was like an expert in or if they just didn't care. Or or if he was just known um, as a weird seaweed guide. It's like, okay, well, we know that the first digit is zero. (laughs) You know, anything to report. It is not seaweed. Thank you very much for your contribution. Moving on. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah. Um, So yeah, so for uh, two years, he was working there from 1939 to 1941. And there's no real um, data on how many codes he successfully cracked, but I imagine it probably wasn't that high. Maybe I'm maybe I'm underselling him here. Um, he could could have been a natural. Who knows? But in 1941, a German U-boat was uh, sank, and on that uh, U-boat, they actually managed to salvage some valuable items, including the um, conversion tables that were used to that the you know the Germans used to convert their coded messages. So obviously they had the cipher, but it had got rather soggy having been in a U-boat that's just sank. So step in, Jeffrey Tandy, expert with <laughs> dealing with seaweed and preserving underwater specimens, <laughs> who steps in and uses the um, knowledge, you know, how to preserve <laughs> wet, you know, the wet paper without, like, damaging the ink. Keep it in a readable uh, condition. And then they use that to get the uh, conversion tables. And also, because he worked at the Natural History Museum, he also was able to, you know, he knew who to call to get all the equipment that was needed to do it. And so there you go. That's great. So if you, you know, just so you know that the foreshadowing we shouted about earlier, this is now the callback to the earlier foreshadowing. Be impressed. (laughs) But what I like is, you know, the idea that for years, you know, maybe like the other like scientists like like bullied him or like made fun of him and then like suddenly like they burst in with this and he goes finally it's my time to shine my god is anyone here a crypto gamma <laughs> he's basically rudolph yeah yeah his, his shiny nose was... <laughs> they used to call him next time then his shiny nose one foggy christmas eve that was his foggy christmas eve and then santa said won't you remove this seaweed <laughs> <laughs> from this conversion table because I he wasn't removing seaweed that's quite an easy thing to do the seaweed off everyone else is going it's so slimy and he goes I'll do it my <laughs> <laughs> god you're here that he knew how to preserve the paper without messing it up give George Tandy some props you're right you know George <laughs> Jeff Tandy get his name right <laughs> Yeah, can you give props to the wrong person by mistake? <laughs> he was a loser, but his brother, God, George, what a what a hero! <laughs> so yeah, that's how. If you ever find yourself woefully 
underqualified. Maybe your specific skills will come in handy several years later in a situation you could not have possibly foreseen. Actually, no, you probably could have foreseen the idea that stuff in U-boats might get wet. So maybe it wasn't entirely stupid. That concludes our first, well, my first topic. Over to you. For my first topic, um, I'll ask you, Chris, uh, what's the uh, thing you've sacrificed most for? I don't know. I'm really not heroic enough to make difficult decisions and had to sacrifice stuff. I just tend to meander down the path of least resistance and see where I end up. It's a good tagline for the podcast, though. (laughs) (laughs) You say you're not sacrificed anything. Maybe if you were born in an English village called Iam in 1665, you might have been braver or maybe you would have booked the trend been the coward you you know your descendants turned out to be (laughs) because uh in 1665 it was the height of the bubonic plague which was like i know super popular at the time so this tailor orders some cloth and stuff from london where the the plague's in in full uh merriment and the cloth was you know riddled with fleas which were carrying the uh the plague and the uh tailor died as a, as a result, but then the good people of Aam, you know, they, they, they'd seen enough historical zombie movies to know what happens when an infection breaks, so they quarantined the entire village, even though it meant, you know, almost certain death for them, but as a result, they saved neighbouring villages and towns from the spread of the plague, and they actually managed to contain it, even though, like, two-thirds of the, the population of the village died horribly. Oh, very heroic and depressing. It is, but when I read about this, my theory was it was long enough ago that we could talk about it on a comedy podcast. And if it happened yes. two years ago, I probably wouldn't have picked it. In a moment of more foreshadowing, my second topic is going to push that maxim to the very limit. So, <laughs> if your if your second yeah. topic is the return of the bubonic plague in rural England in <laughs> 2018, then we might be stepping on some tricky ground. <laughs> By all accounts, the reason I liked it is that there was, there's an oddly cinematic feel to it because it, it's like if one person that's been exposed like breaks the quarantine, then the whole thing is for nothing. But it's quite impressive to like mm-hmm. collectively decide to sacrifice. Like apparently, like the the village like leader and the and the priest like came up with it and like pitched it, which is a hell of a sales pitch. You know, right? We've got a plan. Yeah, it will mean we all die, but we might save other people who you don't know. And knowing the sort yes. of like rural England might have quite strong grudges against neighbouring villages because they want stole a ham <laughs> or something. But you know, it's sort of the closest real life's ever got to the decisions you see in a zombie movie where you mm. you know one one person in the party gets bitten and you decide to kick them out knowing it means certain death but it it might save the group and it made me think that yeah. as a as a fellow coward I would not have survived in in a you know, <laughs> 17th century England because I can barely survive in you know 21st century England and I have access to both Leerdammer and high speed broadband that was my main two. The most important <laughs> you know, for life. I like I like a smoky cheese and access to uh, you know, <laughs> news. Yeah, yeah, that's what you're calling it. Eye-watering news, yeah. <laughs> Related fact, I don't know if any other village is self-quarantined, but, you know, sometimes areas were quarantined, maybe forcibly, maybe voluntarily, I don't know. But if you ever see somewhere called something like Butter Style Lane, you know, something along, you know, like a food slap, food and style or something like that. You know, butter style is one that I know. It is actually named after the place where they'd leave the butter 
on the stile, you know, which is that weird little thing for climbing over fences, they'd leave the butter there um, for the villagers to come and get so that they could leave food there for them without anybody having to go touch them. You'd go leave it at so the it, fence. So it was like a medieval delivery Yes, only not door-to-door because they didn't want plague. No, but you can leave in the instructions, just just leave the food outside, and then you don't have to interact with anyone, <laughs> yeah, that's true. and you just get to scuttle out of your house in a dressing gown and <laughs> get a kebab for free. Well, not for free, but it feels like for free because it's just... For free. <laughs> it, it's just miracle donor meat. Plague must have been that... I mean, the plague... <laughs> well, you had to say the plague must like have been awful. Are bad enough. Well, yeah, but what I mean is... Like, it's bad enough if it happens nowadays and we have some sort of understanding of what it is and what's causing it. Like, back then, they didn't know what microbes were and viruses or bacteria. So they were just like, right, there's something going around, probably caused by the devil or maybe even God himself if he's really pissed off with us. And it basically if means he's in Old if Testament you go near world. somebody, there's a high ch- Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like if he's... yeah. He's reverted back to his crazy youth. Yeah, he's basically, if you go near, too near somebody, you will die fucking horribly. <laughs> and we have no idea what's causing it. Probably demons, but we don't really know for sure. And we have no idea how to stop it. And I think that makes their decision to quarantine even more, like, heroic in a way. Because to them, it's not like, oh, well, this person contracted the plague and we must, you know, contain the plague and, you know, burn the tailor's house or whatever. They're thinking Mm -hmm. an evil spirit, I don't know, but an evil spirit has been sent from London. I don't know how they they realise, oh, well, we must surround ourselves with this, but not let it out into the countryside. You know what I mean? It's like a... Mm -hmm. It's a tricky one to, to get your head around. I mean, do you think you'd last long in the event of a, you know, let's say a zombie apocalypse? It would be the nearest sort of cinematic equivalent. Would I last long? Uh, no. I know you're well stocked with, uh, you know, tins and stuff. You <laughs> eschew dry that is know, true. fresh pasta in favour of dry <laughs> pasta. But the only problem is, as mentioned, I am a coward. <laughs> and the other problem is, I'm not even particularly dark, but I hang out with lots and lots of pasty white people so by cinematic convention i will be the darkest member of the group which therefore means i'm ripe for dying early there's some things you just can't fight <laughs> you know in, in in the same way that i always seem to you know whenever i'm in a sort of horror movie scenario i always find myself drawn to take a shower in a spooky haunted house for no apparent reason mm-hmm. and it, it means that i often yes. die first with gratuitous side boob on show but enough about my <laughs> hobbies <laughs> um good right we'll cover the plague so that's the end of my first topic chris what have you got for your second one you know how sometimes you see you know there's two people who are sort of their lives are intertwined but one of them is like quite nice and stuff and the other one's a massive dickhead and you sort of like how the hell are you two like friends or you know work together or whatever making a podcast together yes exactly and we'll leave the listeners to decide which one of us is which so i'd like to start by mentioning uh jean of arc um good old joni who well to give her a real title saint joan of arc i think is she a saint i feel like she's a saint yeah she's a saint so yeah so obviously she's been honored by the catholic church as a saint and we tend to hold saints in quite high esteem given that you know their saints. Yeah, so obviously she fought in the Hundred Years' War against England. Uh, she claimed to have had visions telling her to, you know, fight for French victory, independence. I have no idea. 
I honestly don't know much about the Hundred Years' War. <laughs> but it was between France and England, and it lasted approximately, but not exactly, and I think, in fact, slightly more than the Hundred Years. Um, but yeah, so obviously, she is a saint. She was apparently sent visions by God, and who tends to, you know, you'd think, tends to keep his visions for the worthy. And for all her troubles, she was burnt alive at the age of 19, because... <laughs> life is cruel and horrible and sometimes God sends you visions which will lead to a horrific death <laughs> for a troubles like like <laughs> yeah. what you'd normally you say like for tipping someone for slightly better than adequate service <laughs> exactly so that's one side of uh, this particular double act uh, the other one I like her comrade in arms a man called Gilles de Ray. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that right. Who was a knight and lord. And he fought alongside Joan of Arc in the Hundred Years' War, including at the famous Battle of Orleans. And whereas Joan of Arc was burnt horrifically at the stake at the age of 19, he was, in fact, appointed Marshal of France. So why do I bring him up? It's because, you know, after Saint Joan of Arc was burnt horrifically alive, in uh, Gilles' later years... He killed hundreds of children horrifically for his own amusement. Remember when I said I was really going to push this? <laughs> if something happened in the past, can we talk about it? I put it this way, his Wikipedia page has uh, the following segments. You know, ignoring, ignoring the, you know, the usual preamble and the bit at the bottom and all that. The uh, main segments of his Wikipedia page are early life military career, private life, and then medieval serial killer. So this is where we're going. <laughs> you know what? In the interest of good taste, I'm not even going to go into the details. Um, but basically, he was uh, thought to have murdered between... I've lost the, uh, the figure. It was between 80 and... I think it was 200 children. Yes, I was right. I mean, that is more than you could plausibly claim as a mistake. Yes, exactly. I mean, because that's the thing, you know, obviously we have horrific serial killers nowadays, but because most of them tend to be, well, that's the scary thing about them. They're just like normal people. And, you you know, you don't know who they are. Whereas back in the day, you know, if you're a lord, you can command peasants to turn over your children at any particular, you know, no, you don't even have to give a reason. If anybody asks a reason, you just kill them too. And nobody's going to do a damn thing about it. Turns out you could be a lot more prolific. The only slight good news, in the loosest sense of the term, is that he was caught eventually and uh, convicted and confessed and was hung to death. So uh, he managed, for his troubles, he managed to have a less horrific death than the 19-year-old Joan of Arc. Because life is cruel and unfair, and especially so if you were a medieval <laughs> peasant or even, well, yeah, just medieval in general, I suppose. Or a woman. Yeah, or a woman. Just going back to the horrific murder, the only reason he was caught was because at one point he kidnapped a bishop because he had a dispute at a church, and that prompted an investigation. I mean, yeah, he is not a uh, not a good man. 
If it was Vikings, though, we'd be able to laugh about it. Because everybody laughs and jokes about how the Vikings raped and pillaged their way across Europe. Or pirates! Pirates get, like, kids' theme, like, kids theme park rides and, like, Johnny Depp starring movies and whatnot. And it all looks very whimsical, despite the fact they literally just pillaged their way across the seven seas, murdering countless people and stealing their livelihoods. Okay, in what year is the humorous Joan of Arc and subsequent butchering of children theme park opening up in a Disney park near you? Well, it's hard to say because like Vikings are obviously pre-Joan of Arc, whereas um, pirates are post-Joan of Arc. So I don't, it's hard to know when exactly the... Uh, we know what the tragedy is. So what's is. the deciding factor? that the Well, the tragedy plus time equals comedy. So I suppose the scale of tragedy... Mm. How I, lucrative the book deal yeah, was. Eye patches... Like you say, always, always whimsical. Whether or not Johnny Depp, because I don't think Johnny Depp will play a convincing Joan of Arc as good as an actor as he is. So that hinders it. You're right, that is the thing that makes it not funny. <laughs> I was going to say, if this uh, podcast goes well and we make a lucrative multimedia deal, how about we open up Joan of Arc theme park? Well, do we not need to have a, a series of, like a franchise of hit movies first? No, no, and they come after. We get the the theme park based. No, no, let's go straight to the theme park. <laughs> Jean de Park. From the people who brought you the most blood bloodthirst. Good, <laughs> solid, clean, family friendly fun. Okay, so um please for the love of God help us climb off this pyre of our own making and rescue us. Um <laughs> Just please, please, for the love of God, make this lighthearted again. Listener, we don't tell each other what topics we're going to talk about beforehand because we think it's more interesting to surprise each other and, you know, we can sort of react off the cuff rather than, you know, pre-plan, you know, what segment's going to flow into another. Sometimes it works and sometimes I have to follow up that topic with the following question. Chris, if you could hunt any animal to death, what would it be? (laughs) Obviously, it'd be the most dangerous game. Geese. Man. Oh. Wait, no, sorry. I don't want to get arrested. Um, <laughs> I'd say those big-ass snakes, which, like, pythons or anacondas, just because ass they snakes. kill my least favourite Venn diagram it's pronounced ever. asp. <laughs> no, like, pythons and anacondas. Because if you do a Venn... I've probably said this before. Well, I've definitely said this before. may have said it before on this podcast. But if you do a Venn diagram of animals that can eat your whole and animals that can fit in through your toilet, pythons and anacondas are the only things that uh, would be in the centre. And that's my least favourite Venn diagram ever. So the opposite of that would be an elephant, which can do neither. Yes! An elephant, not going to fit in through your toilet, can't eat your whole. Like a great white shark, eat your whole, but you know you don't really have to worry about one of them coming up through the U-bend. I really hope there's a W on the beginning of that word whole. <laughs> We're laughing again. It's fine. Who brought it back? Um, uh. Right. The reason I asked that is uh, because in this country, in the UK, it's perfectly legal to kill grey squirrels. We originally had a population of red squirrels, which were mercilessly hunted by uh, immigrant invaders. But that has nothing to do with any political beliefs. I, I, I personally welcome the grey squirrels, and I think they're fine. You just so you you know you can you can hunt grey squirrels. Um, you just can't use landmines in case expensive small dogs step on them. But do you know in Australia what animal it is legal to uh to hunt? 
that well one that you might not expect. Is it the most obviously. dangerous game? It is. It is not. So not the most dangerous game. Oh, because <laughs> um, that's. <laughs> Uh, I reckon. I have a feeling I might know this. Is it rabbits? No, I think that would be that would make for an unremarkable story. <laughs> like, well, in this country you can kill pigeons, but in the well, no, because there is there's a whole the fabled lands of Australia, you can hunt fence to try rabbits. and stop all the they built a they built a big fence to keep them out, and it failed miserably or something. Apparently, like even the army got defeated by rabbits, and yet Trump oh, learned what's nothing. Research? Sorry to. <laughs> Sorry to derail your topic before you even get going, but whilst I was trying to find uh, topics for this week's episode, I found one which was that Napoleon once got attacked by a horde of rabbits and had to retreat. You've got to stop taking hallucinogenics before bed. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck off, there's no anyway, way yeah, that Napoleon <laughs> was killed by rabbits. <laughs> he didn't say killed, so oh. he had to run away. Oh. <laughs> I misheard. I thought famously he wasn't taught a bit by rabbits. <laughs> but he would have been if he hadn't run. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, a narrow escape for the, the plucky conqueror. Uh, no, it's camels. In Australia, you're allowed to hunt camels. <laughs> Sorry, I'm so oh, why? <laughs> oh, because there's loads of them. <laughs> there's way too many. <laughs> oh, how is your voice going? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this is why I wouldn't be a good news reader. (laughs) 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 I've lost lost my mind temporarily. Uh, There's um, over a million wild and feral camels and it's a problem. What are they doing there? Um, Why? Just... uh, Chubby camels, they just roam about a bit. Don't do uh, they, much. No, they they get aggressive. They wreck. They they run in wild packs. They're feral. They uh, they destroy houses and and like rip out pipes and it's it's a whole thing. I read somewhere that Saudi Arabia actually has to import its camels from Australia because they don't have enough. But Australia, obviously, as you just mentioned, that apparently has tons. Yeah, which begs the question, why, instead of killing them, why not just ship them off? If there's countries that want to buy them. <laughs> right, here's a question for you then. <laughs> if you were to be chased by a horde, would you rather it be a horde of camels or rabbits? Like rabbit-sized rabbits, they're not like... Or, yeah, I was going to say, new question. <laughs> Without giving you a chance to answer, new question. What would you rather face? 50 rabbit-sized camels or one camel-sized rabbit? Jesus Christ, imagine how far a camel-sized rabbit could jump. Yeah, and also... Sorry, my mind is just broken entirely. <laughs> like, Yeah, me too. I feel like, yeah, there's absolutely no... Oh, I can't like, make a, a, a sentence. Um, like, But the te- the teeth of the rabbit are going to scale. Like a so like a tooth rabbit. Exactly, yeah. And they've got a feral kick on them. And I think if you scale it up, it's, it's going to be Ooh. an apex predator. 
Whereas, yeah, Christ, you know, what have we done? Well, well, we haven't actually done anything. This is hypothetical. (laughs) We don't have to take my answer and go right, do it. Um, You know, Chris, I've got the genetic material right here in the lab. (laughs) Whatever you choose, I'm releasing. Well, in that case, things it's definitely going to happen. I will fight uh, lots of tiny camels because I feel like you know regular camels like. Although they're aggressive, then the worst they're going to do is spit at you. And a tiny rabbit-sized spit isn't going to be, you know, too much of a problem. Yeah, I think that is the correct answer. Was there any Were there any other points you wanted to hit that we accidentally derailed <laughs> all this talk of rabbits? I think we, we covered the main point. There's loads of camels. <laughs> um, it, just, it just seems like way too big of an animal to, to like, let people hunt. Without any supervision. What do you mean by supervision? You can trust people to like tackle a squirrel, not literally. Yeah, because they're crafty buggers. Whereas, I don't know, just letting a, you know, a sort of willing militia against camels seems a bit much. It's weird though, because we're so, like, obviously in England, we don't have that hunting culture. In fact, we're quite strange, because, you know, normally in like, I say normally, but in like a lot of countries, you know, hunting is seen as more of a lower class hobby. Whereas in Britain, it's you have to be posh to hunt, really. Yeah, it's and aristocratic. Yeah, exactly. You walk around. It's like really weird. In like, if you grow up in a city in England, you you hear less gunshots than you do if you grow up in the posh countryside. Um, yeah, and it's it's weird, like the sort of ceremony behind it, like like fox hunting. I I find very strange, mm. like. It's it's quite a lot of kit to like all the dress up as, as I have yeah and like the trumpets and the dogs and then they do like anointing with the blood like the on your first hunt and they wipe your face with a the fox and it's it's all a bit like secret society yeah a bit bizarre I was on holiday in America once and like I say these are just things you don't think about you because you know in they like say you go for a walk in the countryside in England, and as long as you're not walking through literally a farmer's like game reserve or something where he's shooting pheasants, you know, you're safe. Whereas you walk through a forest in America and then suddenly you see signs saying, you should be wearing bright orange because it's hunting season and we may mistake you. For- it's like you could also encounter bears and mountain lions and stuff. Whereas it's like, here, you might come across a slightly aggressive cow or squirrel um not as bad as napoleon and his rabbits but you know it can still be quite a uh, harrowing experience i can't believe he he was torn to death by by rabbits that is <laughs> i love learning <laughs> yeah, it turns out for the rest of the napoleonic war it wasn't actually napoleon it was just some guy who kind of like him i thought you were gonna say it was a bunch of rabbits dressed up secret. like like under a <laughs> overcoat they like it was actually like like a coup, and they like assumed his form. Mm. Oh, we've learned absolutely nothing. No, not a single thing of use. So that's Australia, camels. That's what we yep. learned. Yep. Yeah, that's it. If you want to shoot a uh, large mammal, go to Australia and shoot a camel. Yeah, that's your homework for this week, listeners. Hey, pals. Make sure you keep listening after the outro, because there's a message from some fellow podcasters about their podcast, which we think you'll really enjoy. And that brings us to the end of 
what I'm confident in saying was the most professional episode of Cooking with Grief yet. You know, all the best <laughs> news organisations just start crying with laughter in the middle of their very important segment. I tell you what, that was an emotional roller coaster of an episode. <laughs> it was like World War Two, the plague, murdering <laughs> medieval serial killers, and now we're going to just piss ourselves laughing about rabbits. I mean, I think that was just an expression of you know relief at getting away from bleak topics. Even though I was worried that the <laughs> slaughtering of camels might be a sensitive subject in itself, <laughs> but luckily we made to. I mean, oh, we, shit, yeah, this is a very dark episode. <laughs> yeah, but luckily we found a way to completely demean all the serious topics we talked about. Yes, but um, That's the only way we know how. We are nothing if not childish. Um, so hopefully you enjoyed this episode, and hopefully you'll join us for the next one. Until then, I've been Chris, and I've been a different Chris. And that's the way it works, because we're separate people. Indeed. Though we have the same first name, we do not in fact share 100% of the same space and time. I mean, sometimes we're, in, we're in the same room. I don't know why I felt need to clarify that. <laughs> no, no one was thinking... Yes, but we don't physically occupy the exact same space. <laughs> physically, no. Emotionally, also no. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> That is our dynamic outro as ever. Hopefully, you'll uh, we'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cooking with Grief. If you enjoyed it, please make sure to recommend it to a friend. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email cookingwithgrief at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter. That's at cookingwithgrief. If you'd like to hear more episodes, then please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you've got the time, then it'd be great if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you. Hello, we're the Firestarters Podcast. Are you tired of having your hands cut off by unreliable history podcasts? Or the inevitable heart attack that comes from non-specific content? To listen to us, the podcast that breaks down every cultural reference of Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire in chronological order. Was it killed by Holmes? We don't know. Probably not. Probably not. But I'm a real tight wad. Can I afford your podcast? We're free on all podcast platforms and of such quality, you'll think we suffer brain damage. We do have the express permission of Billy Joel to do this, right? Um. I just imagine it'd be really, really because they didn't understand the medium yet. And the advertising work, it's just a guy's like, this watch is awesome. And then it just cuts. That's the Firestarters podcast. Search us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from.